You know, as a pastor, one of my responsibilities and privileges in my role as, as being a pastor is that I interact with a lot of people who are going through difficult times, uh, especially physical difficulties. Our, our bodies age, they break down, things happen. And so it's not unusual for someone to call me or an elder or to hear about it in the church and go and visit with someone and they're going through a physical difficulty. And one of the times that I have found as kind of a universal truth that is especially difficult when someone is going through a physical issue is that time when they first learn that something is wrong, but they don't know what it is yet. It's a time of not knowing what it is. And that not knowing can be terrifying. In fact, sometimes I think the not knowing is worse than finding out what it is, even when that thing is quite serious. I can identify with this. I've shared this story with you, something personal to me. It's been a long time. But, but when I was younger, I began to have problems with my lungs. It, it kind of started when I was in junior high, seventh or eighth grade. I don't remember exactly when. But I remember one day I was out shopping with my mom and we were in the car and we were about to go into a store. And I told her, Mom, I, can I stay in the car? My chest hurts. And we didn't know what it was. I, I just knew my chest hurt. And my mom, being the loving, caring, gracious mom, said, it's just growing pains. <laughs> I remember as a parent hearing that phrase and thinking, I can't believe that's so insensitive. I will never say that to my kids. Do you know the number of times they come to me? My knee hurts. My arm hurts. That's ah, just growing pains. But I do remember she let me stay in the car. And it was, it was a sudden kind of stabbing pain in my chest. And every time I breathed, it just kept hurting. The best way I can describe it is, and this gets a little gruesome, but it's like having a, a knife just jabbed in your chest. And with every breath, it feels like it's being twisted. And so I have to sit there and breathe very shallow and very calmly until it goes away. At that time, could be anywhere between 10 minutes, three, four hours. This was the first time I distinctly remember this happening, and we just thought, no big deal, it's just something odd that happened. Another time happened, I was at school, and I, it happened again, and I went to the nurse, and I remember they called my parents to come and get me. They thought it was serious enough, I needed to go home, and they couldn't get a hold of my parents, and so the only person they could get a hold of on their emergency call list was the pastor of my church. Now, he's a, he was a dear, sweet fellow, but I didn't know him at all. I knew of him. I mean, you know, some of the kids see me up here, but I had never really had any interactions. But bless his heart, he came and he picked me up and he took me to his house. And I remember lying on his sofa for about an hour before my mom came. Just shallow breathing. The next time I remember I was a freshman in high school. This one gets to me. I woke up in the morning and I could not breathe. And the pain was excruciating. I couldn't get out of bed, so I fell on the floor and I crawled to my parents' room. And I told them, you take me to the hospital now. That was the beginning of what took almost a year to diagnose this process. That was a hard year. 
my mind went to cancer, heart attack. I don't know what it is. For several months, we thought it was my lung. There was kind of a lighthearted side of this that during this time, or I'm sorry, we thought it was my heart. My heart would make noise. I, I would be sitting in a room. I had a Bible study that I attended with a group of about eight or nine guys in somebody's apartment. And my heart would flap. Blap, 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 blap. You could hear it across the room. And I remember one of my friends going, Dave, your heart's flapping again. I was like, I'm sorry. So we thought it was the heart. We did the EKG, the ECG, the BMI. We did all the vowels and letters. Nothing. It took a long time. Finally, I had an episode and they caught it on an x-ray. And my lung had deflated. I have a problem in my lungs. I was born with a birth defect with these little bubbles and they burst and the air escapes the lung and the lung deflates. It's called spontaneous pneumothorax. I've learned a lot about this condition since then, more than I ever wanted to know. Most people, it is a one-off thing and for most people, it is life-threatening. They have to be rushed to the emergency room, get a tube stuck in, suck out the air, reinflate the lung. I have never in my life had to have that happen. Praise God for that. But for most people, it is a one-time thing. For me, it is a two to three a year time thing and has been ever since I was in junior high. It has never gone away. I still deal with it to this day. Once they realized what it was, I was able to get in and I had surgery on my right lung. They attached the lung to the top of my chest cavity so that if it deflates, it doesn't deflate all the way and it won't kill me still hurts like crazy, but it won't kill me. Since then, the left lung occasionally acts up too, but we're just going to ignore that for now. There's only so much we can do. But I tell you that to emphasize this. That year of not knowing was horrendous. I didn't know what the problem was. The doctors didn't know what the problem was, so we didn't know what the solution was. We couldn't try anything to make it better because we didn't know what the problem was. Not knowing is so difficult. And too often in our lives, we don't know the problem, or worse, we think we know, we guess, and so we just throw other stuff at it, hoping it'll solve the problem. We're in this sermon series that I'm calling Focal Point. It is an overview of the entirety of the Bible. From now, or actually a couple weeks ago until Easter, we are going to be walking from Genesis to Revelation. And we're off at a blistering speed. We're after, I think in our third week, we're in Genesis 3. So we're doing great. We are going to go through several uh, chapters this morning. But I'm calling this morning our greatest problem. Because we need to correctly diagnose our greatest problem. Look, I'm even pointing at my lung as I say that. We need to know our greatest problem. If we don't know it and accept what God says about it, we will never understand or accept the solution. And the Old Testament is so good at setting up for us exactly what is our greatest problem. And so, yes, you might have imagined we are going to be talking about sin this morning. Now, 
I know for some of you right there, a light switch just went off in your mind. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to talk about that bad stuff. This is negativity. I don't need negativity in my life. Don't turn off. I'm begging you to tune in. Fight that part of you that wants right now to run away and say, I don't need to hear this. I don't want to hear this because I promise you there is incredible joy and freedom in correctly diagnosing our greatest problem because then you can see God's greatest solution. And it is amazing. I'm going to ask you to bow with me in a word of prayer. I want to ask the Lord's blessing on this time. This is a very sensitive and difficult issue. Let's ask his blessing this morning. Father, help us as we look at a difficult topic for us. There is that thing, our own sin within us, that fights against this. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to talk about it. But God, I believe we need to, and your word is so clear to point this out to us. So open our hearts and minds this morning to your word. In your name we pray. Amen. We need to talk about exactly what is our greatest problem. I've called this sermon series Focal Point, and and maybe we could talk about our greatest problem as being out of focus. I was thinking about this this week. Like, what exactly does it mean that something is out of focus? You take a picture and you might think, oh, the camera was out of focus. And I've always sort of thought about, well, that means the camera wasn't focused. That's not exactly true as I thought about it. Now, I'm not a photographer, so don't correct me if I'm wrong. But a camera's always focused. It's focused on something. You with me? So let's say I want to take a picture of these lovely people in the front few rows, okay? The camera's going to be focused somewhere. It might be focused on the edge of this pulpit, and they're going to be blurry. It might be focused on the back wall of the church, and they're going to be blurry. But that camera is focused somewhere. It's just not focused in the right place, right? Any photographers, is that roughly correct? Lens people. Okay, good. Ruined my whole sermon if that was wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Here's the thing. We talked last week about being created for worship. To be focused on and reflecting who God is in his glory. And so when we come to the problem, what we're going to see is a shift in focus. We pull our focus off of God and put it on anything else. Anything. We were created for worship. And when we come to Genesis chapter 3, what we're going to see is a drastic shift away from focusing on and worshiping God. Now, let me set the scene for us, in case you weren't here last week, or just to refresh your memory. Um, in Genesis chapter 2, we, we looked in Genesis 1 that God creates everything and it's good. When we get to Genesis chapter 2, God takes Adam and Eve and he, he creates this beautiful creation. And in the middle of the beautiful creation, he puts this amazing garden that has everything humanity will need. And that's where he puts Adam and Eve. They don't have any problems with food or water. They don't have any problems between them. They don't have any problems between them and God. They have everything they could possibly want or need. God gives them a role in this creation. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 says that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful 
and increase in number over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. They were to be stewards, caretakers of the created order. And they were to do all of this as an act of worship to God, honoring and glorifying the Lord Most High. Okay, so that's, that's last week's sermon. But we need to pick up a couple details we didn't go over. Genesis chapter 2, and I should say at this point, if you don't have your Bible open, open up to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. We're mostly going to be in Genesis 3. It'd be good. I'll put some of it up here, but it'll be good for you to have the text open in front of you. Genesis chapter 2 verse 9 says, The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he creates this garden with whole bunches of trees, anything that they need, all the food they could possibly need. But he creates two specific trees. Now, some people will say, oh, well, they're just symbolic. It's just metaphorical. They weren't real trees. Here's the thing. God is the author of history. And he puts things, real things, into real history that also have symbolic meaning. So yes, there is a symbolic meaning to these trees, but I believe, according to the way that the word treats these trees, trees, they were actual real trees in the garden. These are not just word pictures to help us understand these things. And these two trees, you have the tree of life, and that appears throughout all of scripture over and over again. It symbolizes and teaches us God is the author of life and he wants us to have life. If you can imagine living in a kind of a farming society and having fruit trees that bear fruit all the time, you would never lack for food. It would always be there. This is God's picture of giving abundant, everlasting, ongoing life to his people. So you have the tree of life, and it comes up again and again. It appears in the book of Revelation. It's going to be in all of eternity. It says, come and eat from the tree of life. But then we have this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree never appears again in Scripture, as far as I know. And some people say, well, it's, it's just a test. Yes, kind of. But, but they're told not to eat from it. He says, you can eat from any other tree, but not this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does this represent? As I've studied this context and, and the idea of the good and evil throughout Jewish kind of thinking and literature as best I can, what I've come to is that it's not just don't eat the fruit It's that by eating the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, they were claiming the authority to say what was good and to say what was evil. Let's say this. If you invite me over for dinner and you serve me something, say meatloaf. Don't serve me meatloaf, but I I mean, it's okay. But let's say I come over and you ask, do you like it? And I say, yes, I like it. Or, I mean, hopefully I wouldn't be rude. But if I said, no, I don't really care for it, that's my opinion, right? Now, what if I said meatloaf is awful and everybody that eats it doesn't know what they're talking about? Now I've just claimed an authority over everybody's ideas. 
Adam and Eve, by taking the fruit of good and evil, they were declaring, we have the right to determine what is right and wrong, to declare what is good and evil. And that right, God said to humanity and to Adam and Eve in particular, no, that is not for you. Why? Because that's his right and his right alone. So he gives them all these trees and he puts them in this garden that has all the food that they need and he has cared for them with everything that they could possibly want or need. Now, we're going to be introduced in a moment to this snake serpent in Genesis chapter 3. We have to understand who this is. Throughout scripture, the serpent is identified as Satan or the devil. It's not that the serpent himself was necessarily the devil. I don't know if the devil was speaking through the serpent or, or what, acting on behalf of. I don't think Satan is always bound to be a serpent, a snake running around. I also don't think that all snakes are the devil, okay? But in the Garden of Eden, you have the devil speaking through this snake to Adam and Eve. Revelation 12, 9 picks up on this. It calls the devil that great dragon that was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. So he is identified as Satan. So with all this background knowledge, we step now into Genesis chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 6 for us, and then we're going to walk through it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the fruit or from the, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Let's go back to Satan's original question in this passage. His original question here begins with this phrase, did God really say? He gets them to question what God has said. This is not just, although he kind of comes across this way, it's not him just looking for a friendly clarification. Help me out here, Adam and Eve. I want to know God better. No, he is casting doubt on what God said. And look at the way he says it. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? God had given him all this, all these trees for all this food, all this fruit, and said, eat anything you want, just not this one tree. And Satan cast doubt on this. Oh, God's holding good things back from you. He doesn't want you to have any good thing. That's the doubt that he's putting into their minds. Now think for a moment. How did God create the world? How did he bring it into existence? He spoke. Genesis chapter 1, the refrain is repeated over and over and over. God speaks and creation bursts forth. God speaks and creation is filled. God speaks and all reality changes. 
That's the God we serve. And Satan comes along, and that question in chapter 3, verse 1, is like a sledgehammer to the truth of God's word. Did God really say? We still struggle with this today. You know, we can talk about our culture and our world. No, they don't accept the Bible. I get that, okay? Sinful people do sinful things. I get it. But how many of us as Christians come to this and say, this is the word of God. God has spoken. How many of us in times of doubt have been there? I assume many of you have been there too. How many of us have that question in our head? Did he really say that? Did he really mean that? I don't think, I know it says that, but I think different. Do you know how much error creeps into our understanding of God? Because we put that question in, did God really say? Think about it this way. If God didn't exist, or sorry, if God didn't speak, Adam and Eve wouldn't even exist. So the answer to the question, did God say, is absolutely, you're here because God has spoken. Satan plants this idea, this insidious idea in their mind that God is withholding something good from them. Genesis chapter 2 or chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, Eve responds, and she responds mostly correctly. God had said that they would die if they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and she affirms that. This is what he said. She adds a little bit to it, but we must not touch it. God never said not to touch it. He said, don't eat it. She is adding to the word of God. Now, I've gone back and forth in this in my life, whether that was really that big of a deal. But what I see is already she is beginning to claim an authority over the word of God. When we add to what God says, we are claiming an authority that we should not have and that we do not have. We said this, but I think it'd be better if we do this. And sometimes it's done in a spirit of, I want to be super obedient, so so here's the sin, and I'm going to stay far away. And that's great, but the moment we say that it's wrong for anybody else to do otherwise, we're claiming an authority that is not ours. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Satan comes right out and claims that God is lying. You will not certainly die, the serpent says to them. God said, you will certainly die. Satan says, nah, go on. That's just God being overbearing again. He's just withholding good things from you. It is a direct contradiction of how God has made them. Eve decides then in verse 6 to side with Satan and determines that God is indeed wrong and that she knows better. Look at verse 6 again. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Where is God in Genesis 3, 6? Where is the mention of God? Where is the recognition of God? Where is the trust in God? It is absolutely 
absent. Eve, and, and Adam's not off the hook, he's right there with her, he makes the exact same decision. This isn't Eve messed up and Adam's like, well, I guess I'm with her. No, they were in it together. They make their own decision. And she looks at the fruit and says, it's good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. These are the three elements of every sin ever. Good for food is this kind of idea. Well, that'll meet some basic human need. I have to have that or I'm just going to die. I need it to sustain me. Pleasing to the eye. This thing is good even though God says it's wrong. I think it's good. It looks good. It makes me happy. I remember a song. It's probably really old by this time. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Yes, it can. It absolutely can. The fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was bad for them. Even though she looked at it and said, this will make me happy. Desirable for gaining wisdom. We have this idea that this will make me better, smarter, stronger, whatever it is. This will improve me. And along with all of this and under and through all of it is a belief that God's holding something back. That God is not truly good. At the heart of all sin is, as D.A. Carson says, a dethroning of God. A dethroning of God. A kicking God off of his throne. Could you imagine being in the throne room of heaven and there's Lord Most High and he's sitting on his throne and you waltz in and you say, excuse me, you're in my seat. I think I could do a better job than you. Get up. No, no, just stand over there. I don't care. I'm going to sit on the throne. I sure hope that that picture is offensive to you. That's exactly what every sin ever is at its heart. In fact, I've found it helpful to understand sin as the failure to let God be God. It's simply saying, God, you say this, or I don't know what you say, and I don't care, but I'm going to do it my way. I'm just going to do what I think is right. We put ourselves on the throne and say, I have the right to determine what is right and wrong, what is good and bad. Where did we get that idea? Because all the way back in the garden, they took from the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. And ever since then, we have put ourselves in the place of God. I have never understood this more clearly than when I became a parent. You know, because I read things like this and I thought, well, sin is breaking a command. That's true. But I don't think it gets at the heart. Because when you break a command, you're disagreeing with the command giver. And when I tell my kids, hey, there's cookies on the counter, don't eat the cookie. And they take the cookie and they eat it. I don't think... Well, I told them not to take it, and they took it. Do you know what I feel in my heart? They didn't respect me enough to listen to what I just said. I'm not saying that's how they see it. And I don't think in our sin that's how we see it. But we need to come to the Word of God and accept that that's how God sees it. Our greatest problem, our sin, is a rebellion against God who created us. All sin is defying or usurping the authority of God. Now, 
we have a big problem. God said in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Sin, all sin, leads to death. Romans 6.23 starts by saying, it's going to end with great grace, but it starts by saying, for the wages of sin is death. From the moment Adam and Eve took and ate of that fruit, death has entered the world. God did not strike them down in that moment. And we'll talk about the grace to allow life to go on. But death enters the world like a cancer and it begins to spread its damage and to multiply. And the effects of death are not just seen in the grave. The effects of death are seen in the day-to-day effects on our bodies hearts and lungs that don't work the way they're supposed to, that we struggle with day in and day out. The effects of death are seen out in creation with weeds that grow where they're not supposed to grow, with crops that fail, with an economy that is damaged, with human beings and systems that are corrupt. The spread of death and sin is everywhere and pervasive in the world because there are consequences to sin. It's not just, oops, I did this, no big deal. There are consequences. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. We see some of these initial consequences, and I want to look at these through the rest of chapter 3, and then we're going to fly through about six chapters in Rome, or in Genesis, rather. These initial consequences are right away in chapter 3, verse 7, we see them trying to cover themselves up. The eyes of both of them were open. They sewed together fig leaves. They're trying to cover their nakedness. Something's wrong with us, they realize. And they're trying as best they can to cover it up. Also, we see, and I'm not going to read all of these, but we see God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. They've just sinned, and God's strolling through the garden. I love this. I mentioned this last week, I believe. I believe this is an indication of the kind of relationship God wants with us. Walking around and saying, hey, how are you? It's good to see you. Let's sit and chat for a while. Let's hang out. I want to be with you. He's walking in the garden and just hanging out with Adam and Eve. But they have sinned and so they're hiding from him. Their relationship with each other is broken. Their relationship with God is broken. And God calls out, where are you? Now listen, God never asks a question in scripture he does not already know the answer to. Never. God knows exactly where they are. When God asks questions in scripture, it's because we need to think about the question and the answer. Adam and Eve needed a gut check. Where are you? Something has happened. God knows exactly what the problem is. He says, did you eat of that fruit? He knows, right? It's like when you go to your kids and you know they've done it, like they have the crumbs all over their face. Did you eat the cookie? No, I didn't eat the cookie. No, we know. I tell my kids all the time, like, I was there once. I used all those tricks. I know what they are. You can't get away with it. I was a bad kid, which helps me to be a good parent. That's my my philosophy. My, parent, my kids are going to be horrible parents because they're good kids. No, I'm just kidding. God knows what the problem is. But look what Adam does right away. Does Adam say, oh, yes, I did that? He says, no. The woman, so he's right away is blaming Eve. 
but he doesn't stop there. The woman you created. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. He's blaming Eve, but he's also blaming God. Well, God, I wouldn't have done this if you hadn't created Eve. Sin protects itself. This is why when I was preparing the sermon and, and when I started the sermon, I wanted to make sure to, to kind of grab your attention and to pray because sin protects itself. It's why so many churches and, and all throughout our culture, nobody wants to talk about sin anymore because sin wants to hide and protect itself. Don't deal with sin. It makes people uncomfortable and they won't come to church. But if we don't deal with sin, what's the point of the church in the first place? Because the whole point of the church is to offer salvation through Jesus Christ. And guess what? You don't need it. And you'll never understand it if there's no sin or we never talk about it. We can't get to the solution if we don't know the problem. Let me just breeze through the rest of this. Eve goes on and she blames the serpent. They're all blaming each other. And then God curses the serpent. He says there's going to be enmity between her and Eve's offspring. I don't think that really means that all snakes are evil and horrible. You may disagree, but I I don't think that's saying all of that. But it's ultimately leading to this big picture of Satan's work that will continue throughout all of human history and the offspring of Eve that will continue until one will come that will crush the head of Satan. We see in this passage, everything that God has created to be good gets twisted and warped. He commanded Adam and Eve to spread, to fill the earth, to have offspring. Now, living that out, they're still going to do it, but it's going to bring pain and hardship to Eve. He commanded Adam to work the ground. He's still going to do it, but now it's going to be difficult and painful and hard. These ones that were created in the image of God will now die and return to the dust from which God created them. There's this little inkling of hope at the end of chapter 3 in verse 21. God takes an animal and kills it and covers their nakedness with it. And nothing is said about it, but as scripture goes on, we find that God commands them to kill animals as a sacrifice for sin. There's this ongoing picture that life must be given to cover over sin. And one day Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes and lays down his life to ultimately, permanently, eternally cover over the sin of those who accept him. And then in verses 22 to 24, God removes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He wants to make sure they can't go back and eat from the tree of life and live forever. You know, it's easy to look at that and say this is judgment that they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, but it's also mercy. Could you imagine what it would have been like to live in the perfect presence of a holy God right there in his presence and be a sinner? We don't have to imagine because throughout Scripture we're given glimpses of that. And to be in the presence perfectly of a holy God and be a sinful human being is agony and hardship. And so God closes the way back to the Garden of Eden. There is nothing we can do to go back. 
Sin is not just doing something wrong. It is not just breaking a commandment. It is kicking God off his throne, putting ourselves in his place and saying we can do better. When we do that, we have upset the whole created order. We have turned everything on its head. And Genesis chapters 4 through 11, I just want to summarize some of the high points. Show us how bad this is. In Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve begin to have children. And one of the brothers kills another one of the brothers. Genesis chapter 5, we have this genealogy, this list of all the offspring and their descendants. And there's a phrase that is repeated over and over again that is so tragic in light of Genesis 1 and 2. The phrase is, so-and-so lived so long and he died. And then the next person, and he died. And the next person, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Why? Because sin has entered the world, and death has come. In chapters 6 through 9, we have the account of Noah and the worldwide flood. I've always wondered why God includes this. And there's so many different reasons. I'm just going to share one of you that I, or one of them that I think is important to us. Couldn't God just start over? What if there were people, hypothetically, we'll call them Christians. What if there were just good people that said, we're going to be really good and we're going to do the right things and God could just start over with us. That'll make everything great. Do you know who was righteous, a good person on the earth at the time of Noah? Noah. God wipes out all of humanity and he starts over with Noah. And do you know what happens within moments of getting off the ark? Within days or weeks, Noah sins. We don't need just a do-over. We need to be changed from the inside out. Chapter 10 shows humanity spreading out through around the world and the beginning of culture and cities. And then we get to Genesis chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel. And the people say, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower so high, we will be like God. And what does God do? He confuses their language and they go their separate ways. Why? Because we cannot fix our greatest problem ourselves. And if God would allow us to chase after that, we would ignore the true solution. And this is why we have to talk about sin as Christians, so that we can get to the true solution. Genesis chapter 12, we're going to meet Abraham. We're going to pick this up next week. Through Abraham and his offspring, God's going to reestablish a relationship with humanity. And one day an offspring of Abraham will come. And he'll be born in a place where they keep animals. He's going to be born of a virgin. And his name is going to be called Jesus. He saves. And he'll also be known as Emmanuel, God with us. God leaves the throne of heaven and comes to live among us in this sinful, disease, death-ridden creation that we have altered with our sin. God comes to be with us. Matthew chapter 4, Satan tempts Jesus three times. And how does Jesus respond every time? He says, it is written. 
which is another way of saying God has said. Jesus does what Adam and Eve couldn't. Jesus then lives a perfect life and then he goes to the cross. Why? Because the wages of sin are death. 2 Corinthians 5.23 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We will never understand how important that was that Jesus would die on the cross in our place if we don't deal with how awful sin is. We have to know the problem if we are to accept the solution. Think about this. The Bible, I believe, is very clear that God knows everything. God knows everything that will ever happen. I believe that when God created Adam and Eve, he knew exactly what they were going to do. He knew it. He didn't get up that morning and go, oh my goodness, this did not go the way I thought. He knew. Which means he also knew the solution. He knew that he would send his son Jesus to die for them. For us. Which leads to a very interesting conclusion. When God created Adam and Eve, he condemned his son to die on the cross. And he did so willingly, purposefully, because he loves us that much. And because he had a purpose for us to live in a relationship with him and to worship him and glorify him forever. And even though we wanted to kick God off the throne, and even though day in and day out we act that way and we live that way, God loves us enough to send his son. Sin is at work in our lives. It is at work in our world. We don't want to look at it. We don't want to deal with it. And even when we get a hint of it, we just say, leave me alone, don't talk about it. But I believe, just like when I found out what was going on with my lungs, and and there was some semblance of a solution. Now, Christ's death on the cross is a much better solution. It is permanent, and it is eternal. Friends, there is a solution to your greatest problem. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross in your place. But if you're going to understand how great that is, we have to look at sin. We have to understand how bad it is. We have to recognize its ongoing work in our life and call it what it is and bring it before our Savior and say, forgive me. And we need to realign ourselves with God and say, you are on the throne. God is God and we are not. That's a realignment with who God is. At the end of all of human history, in the beginning of eternity, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 through 7, we hear these words. Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. Oh, we have tried to kick him off the throne, but God is not easily moved. He is still reigning on his throne. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, you are God. You are on your throne. 
we will see him for who he is. But if we can recognize our greatest need now, we can understand that God is holding out to us the solution through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, I know as I say these things, my my own sin is confusing my thoughts and my speech. And, and the sin of the people sitting here listening or listening online is, is confusing their understanding or their acceptance. I know there is that, that part within us, that sin that just causes us to want to get away and run away from looking at this issue. But Father, grab our gaze and lock it on this important issue that we see in Genesis chapter 3 and every chapter and every year and every life ever since that our greatest problem is that we have rebelled against you in our sin and continue to do so. And then, Father, may your great solution through your Son, Jesus Christ, shine like a ray of hope through this darkness. And may we appreciate the truth of the gospel and the brilliance of your solution that is the only answer to our problem. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here today that is, is looking for band-aids in their life and little solutions to make them feel better, help them to just fall on their face before you and declare that you are God and they are not. And to trust and accept your great solution to their great problem. To give their lives to your son, Jesus Christ, who died to save them. And for all of us, Father, remind us, may we live with the constant acknowledgement that sin is real, it is a real issue, and we must deal with it. May we not give in, and may we always remind ourselves what you have truly said through the power of your word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.